stay right there. This is our final podcast for 2019 and we've taken away any stress that planning a destination to visit may cause by putting together a list of the top five countries to travel to in 2020. Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Hi, it's Kim and Phil with you. And look, it might be slightly loaded as these top five destinations are based on the most listened to episodes of the World Nomads podcast. Oh, you've got to get your stats from somewhere. And um, we reckon these destinations actually are right on the money. So let's get into it. Number five. Counting backwards and coming in number five is Portugal or Portugal. Uh, It's got sunny summers and mild winters and and the streets are filled with beautiful facades. Portugal is just a few hours flight from um, most of the European cities, so it's really easy to get to. And whether you visit to hit the beach or cycle through the parks and reserves, it's the perfect outdoor destination. Well, in that episode, we spoke with James Cave. He grew up in Portugal and runs the blog, The Portugalist. I did a a blog post recently about all the different events in the Algarve and there was just so many um, and so many small little ones there, um, especially small little uh, food festivals. There was... um, there was one for um, for snails, uh, one for a certain type of sausage, um, there's one for sardines, and these are sort of dotted throughout the year. There was one really, really bizarre one that was the Festival of the Pine Cone, where people, um, they go on this big, long walk to another town and shout, long live the pine cone in Portuguese as they leave and ring the church bells and go to the next town and have lunch and come back. And that seems to be uh, the whole festival. A lot of people probably wonder how different Portugal might be from its much larger neighbour, Spain. Is there a lot of difference? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, yes and no. I mean, to us as you know, English speakers and non-Mediterranean people, it can feel like they're very, very similar. But you do you don't want to say that to a Portuguese. And the longer you spend here, the more you start to see the um, the differences. Like uh, the food is um, slightly different. The attitudes and way of life are different. Spain's quite a sort of happy and noisy country. Um, Portugal's a little bit more um, conservative and uh, they uh, tend to be uh, a lot quieter, a lot more sort of introspective. Um, They have this thing uh, that's very important to Portuguese culture called um, uh, saudade, which is... um, uh, which is a difficult thing to explain, but it's, it's sort of wishing you were in another place, basically, wishing you were another place in your life, somewhere in the past or um, sometimes even in the future and just feeling a longing for that, which sounds a little bit like depression to the rest of us, but is um, just a key part of the Portuguese uh, sort of mentality. So quiet and introspective, is that why it's, and I did not realise this, known for its yoga retreats? Recently, there's been a lot of different types of tourism starting up and uh, yoga is one of them and surfing holidays is another. Uh, Often people come to to Portugal to learn a new skill, um, to learn to paint or to go on a walking holiday. 
Um, and I, I think this type of tourism is quite good. It's quite, you know, it's quite small, um, but it's usually uh, a lot more responsible, a lot uh, greener. Um, and I think, um, you know, probably a very good thing. I'm, I'm just sort of trying to paint this picture, I guess, and it may be incorrect of it being this fabulous place that it, that you visit if you want this holistic experience. It sort of exists. Uh, if it exists in little patches. So, um, for example, the um, Monchique, uh, which you're talking about, is this mountainous part of the Algarve, which um, is, it has these healing springs and um, it's a beautiful area for walking. Then maybe the next couple of towns along will be quite touristic, but then you head on to uh, the western Algarve and you'll start to find more smaller, quieter towns and uh, more of a what you're saying, this sort of um, holistic accommodation or holistic retreat. So it's sort of dotted around at the Algarve and dotted around the whole of Portugal. Was Kim expressing, what's the word, saudad? What was the word? Was she expressing a longing for a type of Portugal that doesn't really exist there? <laughs> quite, quite possibly. I think she nailed it. <laughs> After talking to Sandra and she's sort of suggesting the place is being loved to death, I just want to make sure, Phil, that everyone knows that there is a quiet <laughs> corner where you can do a bit of omming, okay? Okay, all good. There has been a lot of um, tourism to Portugal over the last few years. Is, is that what Sandra is talking about? Yes, and um, the, she says that Portugal is embracing it, but the, at the same time uh, a lot of the businesses get frustrated by the, the number of tourists. So Lisbon in particular and Porto have had huge numbers of um, tourists over the past uh, couple of years. And the city is really, really quite small and not able to um, to cope with it. And um, in Lisbon, it was very badly managed um, in terms of just... Uh, the number of people that they allowed to rent out apartments on Airbnb. And so it's created this housing crisis where people are moving out or the Portuguese people are moving out of the cities, uh, out of the city centre because landlords are renting their properties uh, short term instead. Um, so, yeah, so the, that is definitely happening in um, in parts of Portugal. Yeah, just on the public transport, I read that they try and encourage tourists or travellers to stay away from it in the peak hours of the morning and the evening so that workers can get to and from work without any hassle? Yeah, well, I mean, if you think of uh, Lisbon, I don't I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the, the quintessential type of public transport here is these tiny little wooden trams. They're really, really beautiful and entertaining if you're a tourist. But for, if you live here, that for a lot of people, that's actually how you've got to get to work or go to the shops or whatever. Uh, the route near me, for example, tram 28, is, is probably one of the most beautiful trams routes um, or public transport routes in the world. Um, but it, I've taken it once since I've been here because I, I'll just never get on it. Like there will be queues of maybe 200 people at sort of the peak hour of the day. So one thing on the blog that I'm working on at the moment is trying to encourage people to to walk that route or to, or to do it slightly differently, um, both for the sake of people living here, but also uh, for themselves as well. You know, you don't want to spend... Um, you know, an hour and or longer waiting to get just to get on um, public transport. Hopefully, the city officials are addressing this, though. I mean, it, it sounds like a 
pretty bad problem. Yeah, they're starting to slowly. I mean, Portugal's very, very dependent on tourism and the things get done very, very slowly here in a lot of cases. It's, it's, I don't know, I think it's quite a unique um, situation for um, for the uh, for Lisbon and Porto that the effects of uh, tourism has been so noticeable. It's um, for whatever reason, people in all in one go started coming and writing about it and sharing about it on social media and, and, it, and it just all took off at the same time. Thank you, James. And just to remind you, we're counting down a list of the top five countries to visit in 2020 based on the most listened to episodes of the World Nomads podcast at Phil and Exact Science. Better than Eddie. <laughs> number four. Coming in at number four is Ecuador. And in that episode, we discussed the Galapagos Islands plastic ban, its waterfalls, whales, stunning hikes, going commando and travelling light. <laughs> one of our interviews was with Nicole Rudenberg. In fact, I think you did this one when you went to... To Edinburgh. Edinburgh, you did. She's from Colourful Ecuador Travels. And you asked Nicole what the best thing about Ecuador is. It's the people. Like, the, the people are really... Like, it's it's they're very genuine, but also, like, how the culture is built. It's very much based on, on sharing, on having time for persons. Uh, um, if, if somebody has one dollar, they will buy a beer and they will share it together like it's not it's not about a, a very selfish culture it's just yeah just about life and then, like for me that is what makes me happy in life of being able to have the time to share of but not being busy now with what I'm actually going to be doing tomorrow in a couple of hours so also to have this this thing that you can basically do what you want to do at that moment so for example when we have a busy day in the office and we say oh, let's just go out the whole office for karaoke everybody can like even if we say it's at two o'clock in the afternoon like a few phone calls are made to parents and grandparents and uh, boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives and at five o'clock we're all singing karaoke like so that's that's a bit of how the spirit is like it's basically of living there it's not the most efficient culture in the world and we might like if we would be working in europe we do it with a lot less people but we have fun like there's 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 a genuine like happy vibe always everywhere uh and so how is it one of those countries where the majority of people live in the capital or is it spread out or it's quite spread out like the the capital is, is quito so that has about a two million people so guayaquil is the biggest city of ecuador it's the one of the most well the, the product, most productive city it's based on uh, the coastal area so there it has about two and a half million people so those are like the, the two main areas where people live in total we have 13 million people living within ecuador a lot of more of ecuadorians living outside of ecuador uh, but after Quito and Guayaquil, like the biggest city is Cuenca, and that's about 500,000, so it goes down. I heard you speaking, uh, we're here at Wistic, I heard you speaking the other day about there are, what, four or five regions of the country. Just take us yeah. through those. Yeah, so we yeah we divide the country a bit in, in four regions. We have the, the Sierra, we call it. It's the Andean region, so it's everything to do with the mountains. We have a whole Andean spine going through the whole of Ecuador, uh, basically from the border of Colombia to the border of, uh, of Peru. So that we call it the, the Andes. So there's, there's beautiful snow-capped volcanoes, villages, uh, there's a lot of indigenous people living there as well. We have colourful markets, but also the capitals and the colonial centres. Uh, we have the Amazonia, so that's the jungle area. It's the whole Amazon basin. Uh, we don't actually touch uh, the Amazon. That's one of our biggest frustrations. Like They, t- they say that the, the Peruvians took it away, so that's a bit like a, <laughs> a bit of neighbour resentment in that part. Uh, but it's the whole Amazonian basin, so that's everything that we call the jungle area. We have the coastal plains, so that's the part mostly going up to the coast, so that's the whole Pacific coast. And then Galapagos is a separate region for us as well. 
So those are the four ones, like the Amazon. Let's Sierra, start with the big one, the Galapagos. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, is it heavily protected? It's heavily protected in a way that it's, it's not easy to move there. Like it's part of Ecuador, but it's considered a complete, like we have a special regimen that, that goes there. So there's there's special laws for the part of the Galapagos. There's special labor laws as well, as also in how, that you, how much you pay people. For example, salaries in Galapagos are 75% higher than the mainland. That's by law. So the minimum wage in Ecuador at the moment is 385. And in Galapagos, it's 575. So that's, that's already a difference. Uh, and you have to be Galapagueño to be able to live there. Becoming Galapagueño, you can be born there or you can marry into it. That's the only way basically you can get it. And then as uh, an Ecuadorian or as any other foreigner that has like a valid working visa, you're able to go and work there if you are allowed to by the, the government. So that means basically as a Galapagos company, you can apply for it. You can say, okay, I've looked between all the Galapagueños that live there and there's none that fit my description. Uh, I need, uh, for example, a marine biologist with so many years of experience in researching turtles. I have this person and then they tell you how much time they are authorized to do it. It's normally maximum a year and you can extend it up until five times. So that's like the maximum. So that's that's one of the, the ways that they're trying to protect it because in the past, especially with the tourism industry uh, growing a little bit, there were people moving there and then starting to work, uh, especially as waiters and receptionists because also the guiding part is heavily protected. Like you can only become a Galapagos National Park guide if you are a Galapagano. So that takes the level of the guide sometimes down quite a bit. Uh, to have, so a lot of, for example, the, like companies that want to have like a really good nature experience they send both a biologist and a Galapagos National Park guides to do with the park with regulations uh, and what about just uh, as a visitor though if you um... as the visitor you're allowed to come for 60 days a year that's the, the maximum you can stay there so um, they, are, they, they they put in some new laws that were put into place in May and they're actually going to be effective in, uh, in November so that changes the whole rules on plastic uh, there's no plastic straws allowed there's no plastic uh, if you want uh, no plastic containers so if you're going on a boat excursion you will get all like just normal plates and everything there's nothing that can be thrown away um, and no plastic bags so you're not even allowed to bring your shoes in a plastic bag like nothing that is plastic that can only be used once so that's the biggest change in, in the law that's going to be effective on the 1st of uh, November and one of the other things that you cannot go without an itinerary so you already have to have a plan uh, and that you're staying in the legally approved hotels because yeah, other forms of, of accommodation also took a flight of people just staying like in people's houses and that is not the idea like the idea is that the national park also regulates all the hotels that are approved to be in the Galapagos National Park in the residential areas basically because only 3% of the Galapagos National Park is actually allowed to be lived at uh, which are the like the four towns that we actually have and the a couple of the highland parts where there's some farming allowed and that is that is controls how to do their waste management how to do their water management so also to like to keep everything at low control they have now in store that like you cannot travel there and just see what kind of hotel you're going to book when you're arriving what's your favorite part outside of the Galapagos? 
actually, there, for, for me, there are places above the Galapagos uh, within Ecuador. Um, there's parts called, uh, there's parts we call the Paramo, which is above the three and a half thousand meters. So you have like a most amazing landscapes. So if you drive, for example, from Quito to Tena, Tena is one of like the easy accessible jungle towns. You go from 2,800 meters up to four and a half thousand more or less by the road. And that's, that, it just gives amazing landscapes with, uh, we call it Paja, so it's like grass and with uh, lakes everywhere and then you go all the way down to the jungle so like the nice thing around ecuador is just like sit in the public bus or go and drive with somebody in a car and just look out the window because it changes every five minutes you have a different different view and so like the paramo would be one of it you have uh, near cuenca if you drive from cuenca to uh, guayaquil you have el cajas it's a national park and it's actually one big lake and there's uh, moss on top of it so it's you can walk on it what it's, it's there there's there's meters wide moss so you you walk on top of it and you walk through this forest and it's like a whole fairy tale that came alive they're beautiful beautiful yeah lakes and little trees and you can see well the, the rabbit the foxes different things around it and they make you make beautiful hiking there wow so that is really really great uh there's some areas where you have just waterfall after waterfall there's also yeah just parts where you have very like turning windling roads so every time you look like there's like another another turn in the road and you see like another five waterfalls coming down so those are beautiful and of course like the the the, the whales like every every summer i do i do try to go because it's just one of these things that you're like you're this i was there a couple of weeks ago and just from the beach you could see the whales jump so and they're so big like it's always an amazing thing it doesn't matter how many times you've seen them like this whole bus size animal coming out of the out of the ocean it's, yeah, it's wonderful. Tell us what it is you do, what your company does there, how people can get in contact with you. Okay, uh, well, I work for Colourful Ecuador Travels. Uh, we're a company that's uh, it's inbound tourism, so we try we organise everything around Ecuador and the Galapagos. If you want to go anywhere else, we'll refer you to other people because we, we really love what we do. So as a company, we really believe in yeah in what the country has to offer. So we organise the trips, we put together and connect uh, both providers with, with the clients in general. And we've started also, like, operating different parts of hotels. So we have uh, Casa Liso. It's a small boutique hotel in, in Quito. We work with, together with Indy Sea It's an educational hotel, or it's an educational center, actually. Uh, and the hotel supports the whole part of, uh, of the center in Guamote, uh, which is about four hours from Quito. We have Mugusta Galapagos. So we do Galapagos Island hopping in a different way, also connecting the local providers so that there's people, like the, the real situations that there are people living on the Galapagos Islands. So it's also nice to support the local businesses, which is a way that you do with with a part of the island hopping uh, and we also do volunteer work and uh, and have a Spanish school in Quito. Thanks Nicole and links to the top five episodes will be in show notes of course. Number three. Is Bhutan. Now, we uncovered Bhutan's phallic obsession, <laughs> discovered why, of course the, you did. Yeah, why the local pigs don't fly but they do get high. Yep. And we asked Alex, a traveller with a blog called Lost With Purpose, if that daily tariff for inbound travellers is worth it. So a lot of people cringe when you think of the – or when you hear of the 200 to 250 a day fee. But it's not so much a tourist tax as it is an all-inclusive fee. You're basically paying to go on a tour in Bhutan. And so the 250 a day includes your accommodation, your transportation, your guides fees, your foods, entry fees for wherever you're going that day, etc., etc. And though it seems like a lot, especially relative to other countries in the region, um, 
what Bhutan is doing with that money is actually quite good. A good portion of that money goes towards sustainable development within the country, so building infrastructure, providing free healthcare and education for everyone, stuff like that. Um, so your money is not just disappearing into some deep, dark governmental pocket. It's actually being put to good use and for the most part covering basic toward expenditures. Well, because Bhutan is one of the first countries and maybe the only country that uh, not only measures GDP, but it measures happiness. It has a happiness index as well, which is part of government uh, policy. Yeah. I mean, how whether or not they actually measure happiness that much or not measure happiness, but hold it to that higher regard within the country, I'm not entirely sure about that. That wasn't necessarily so evident when I was there. I think people are generally somewhat content, or they're content, um, but I wouldn't say that the, there's an immense amount of happiness within the country necessarily. Oh, no, I think but that's it's more but like least, a media spin. Yeah, but at least it's on the radar of the government as yeah. one of the priorities that they want. Which yeah, is I mean, the government definitely prioritizes um, the important things. Like, they do value the well-being of their people. Um, something that I really admire is that they put a strong value on maintaining forest coverage in the country. I believe it has to be a minimum of 60% or something like that. Um, and currently it's around 70 something percent. So the government has the environment at the forefront of its plans. Is Bhutan worth the money? I think Bhutan is absolutely worth the money. If you have the money, it's worth the money. Um, it's hard to find a country that's finding such a healthy balance between kind of traditions from the days of yore and modernity, like more globalized aspects of culture are starting to creep in. Like you'll see kids walking around in Nikes in the capital. Um, everyone has smartphones in the bigger cities. But I think that it's generally been quite well preserved, but not in a museum sort of sense. They're not being forced to maintain any kind of traditions. It's not like super contrived. This is just the way that things are. And because the government really puts maintaining its culture at the forefront of its planning, um, yeah, it comes off as quite authentic without being contrived. And so I think that itself makes it worth the money. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that it's still authentic, but I do worry about it being, um, uh, being kept as somewhere that's a privilege to go to or somewhere that, um, you know, it's kind of cast in concrete and never changes? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think travel is inherently a privilege regardless of where you're going. It's a privilege, not a right. Um, and I think that if the cost barrier makes it a luxury privilege only, if that's what it takes to maintain the country's well-being, then so be it. And other countries in the region like Nepal or India that are just totally overrun with backpackers and some of them are culturally quite sensitive and others are just there to smoke as much weed as humanly possible and bum around somewhere for as cheap as possible. Um, I think in a country like Bhutan that only has, what, 800,000 people in the country, um, I think it's good to try and maintain a balance between foreigners swooping in and doing as they will and the local population maintaining a normal way of life. I guess what bothers me is there's kind of a, you know, given that most travellers that go to Southeast Asia, it's a very Western thing to uh, have the uh, ability to travel in that way. And then, as you say, swooping in in your, um, you know, elephant pants and smoking weed is one kind of, um, you know, cultural 
imperialism. But then it kind of bothers me that Bhutan, I mean, and it's expect $250 a day is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So kind of is that making it a, a you know, a, a luxury enclave or, you know, a, a place only for the rich? I don't know. I feel I, I'm conflicted by that. Yeah, I was also quite conflicted about that because, I mean, I went to Bhutan as part of a sponsored trip. It was a place that I would never be able to go, afford to go to any time in the near future, possibly ever. But it wasn't really something that I questioned because I understood that it was a manner of filtering out kind of people who are less concerned about the country they're visiting so much as just trying to check something off of a bucket list or hit up every country. And all of the tourism officials and people in the industry that I spoke to in the country, they all agreed that they thought it was a very effective way of screening tourists. They said that all the tourists that they had were incredibly respectful of the local cultures and much more engaged and interested in the country because of the effort and finances that they had to put forward to visit the country. And they said that they weren't just getting immensely wealthy people. There are people who had been saving for years and years and years to go to the country. So it's not just an enclave for the rich tourists. But what sort of experience do you have once you're there? So once you're there, it kind of depends on where you choose to go. A lot of the people are just choosing to go to, they go to Thimbu, the capital. They go to Paro to see the tiger's nest, which is the famous monastery up in the mountainside. They go to Punaka to see the one of the largest Zong's fortresses in the country. And so there it is a kind of like show up, see the highlights, see a pretty fortress, see some fancy Buddhist things done and over. Um, but as the country starts to kind of increase in popularity and get some repeat tourists, more people are branching a bit further out into the country, going to the far north or the far east. Um, I myself started in the south of the country that very few people go to. People were really surprised to see foreigners there to begin with. They're like, why did you want to even come here anyway? (laughs) Um, And so there it was more like very quiet villages with really idyllic little picture-perfect houses on the mountainside and a lot of like rice terraces. And there was just, I mean, a lot of my days were just kind of wandering around and chatting with people that I encountered, sometimes with a guide, sometimes without. Um, For part of my tour, I had a private guide and he was basic. He was immensely flexible. He was like, okay, what do you want to do? We could do this. If you want to do this, so be it. Do you want me to come with you and translate? If you do, sure. If you don't, also fine. I'll see you later. Um, so that was really nice and far more flexible than I had anticipated. Um, and then for the other part of my tour, I was with a larger group of about 10, 15 people. And we went to a Highland, the Royal Highlander Festival in Laya, which is Bhutan's northernmost settlement. And that was really wild because it was a two-day trek up to this small town in the mountains. Um, and it was a festival to celebrate nomadic traditions and cultures in Bhutan. And so nomadic tribes from all over the northern bits of the country came together for, to show off sports and dance and other cultural activities. The king came. I love how you just threw that away. The king came. Yeah, the king. Oh, yeah, the king by the way, by the way, I got to meet the king of Bhutan. <laughs> <laughs> he was the one who spearheaded this festival. He started it because he wanted to bring more attention to the northern area of the country. And what better way to do that than a festival? So he actually started this festival and he makes the trek up to the festival himself every year on foot. Even though he's a king, he does not get helicoptered up, he walks up. And so he came to the festival for the first two days to come and say hello and shake hands and, yeah, greet the people. And so that was pretty wild. He also looked like a Bhutanese version of Tom Cruise in 
uh, Top Gun because he had his hair slicked back and had aviators on and was just like so cool and charming as he was gliding through the crowds. And so that was a lot of fun because the tour group would just kind of come together in the morning, have a little bit of a chat, have a bit of breakfast, and then we could just disperse and go off on our merry way and do whatever we wanted during the festival and then come back later. What I loved about that story was that you straight away you separated the money from how a nomad wants to travel. Would you agree, Phil? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. The way you separate the money from how a nomad wants to travel, what do you mean? Uh, I mean, travelling responsibly and, you know, being able to make your own choices and then being able to, you know, connect with the people that you meet is part of what being a nomad is about, you know, what we believe at World Nomads anyway. And it seems as though, you know, like that 250 bucks a day has melted away because it's enabled this really special kind of travel. Yeah, I'm like you. I don't want to have a super rigid holding your hand. We have to do X, Y, and Z. And if we don't, the world will end kind of thing. Freedom and flexibility is paramount in any kind of adventure. Thank you, Alex. And before we hear what number two is, and number one, of course, on the list of top places to visit in 2020, what were the bigger talking points around travel in 2019? Yeah, look, undoubtedly over-tourism was one of the major stories with many towns and cities putting up the shutters or at least installing turnstiles. Try and keep the invading hordes out. Tourists go home was heard more than once from Barcelona to Angkor Wat. The other big news has to be the hashtag flight shame and the impact that that has had on passenger numbers in Europe, where, of course, it's easy to catch a train instead of a plane. Look, it's sensible to reduce your own footprint as much as possible, but let's not forget that there are many, many positive benefits to travel, the breaking down of barriers, income to communities that desperately need it. So we think that while it's important to be accountable, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater as far as that's concerned. Nicely said, Phil. Well, let's get back to counting down a list of the top five countries to visit in 2020 based on the most listened to episodes of the World Nomads podcast. Number two, Albania, pretty much undiscovered by travellers. Tim Neville, a freelance writer, he's been there a few times now, Tim. I have, yes. I I sort of stumbled into the place and immediately realised I needed to head back and uh, have continued to do that over the the past, oof, maybe seven years or so now, I guess. I think the thing that captivated me the most about the country was how little people really know about the place. They have sort of these stereotypical notions of the place, I guess. Uh, And then you actually go there and you realize how wrong a lot of those those thoughts are, uh, how beautiful the place is, how incredibly friendly the place is. And the thing that's most surprising about this is that it's Europe. So it sort of feels like Europe, like the signs look European. Um, you know, the Italy, you can literally see Italy across the Adriatic at night. Uh, and yet it feels so different from anything in Europe that I've ever, ever experienced. Seven years, that's a long time, Tim. Place must have changed in that time, though. For sure, yeah. And that's the other thing that's so exciting about uh, Albania is that it has this this crackle about it. You can go into cities or go into villages and feel the changes happening. It feels incredibly dynamic. You know, I think every place in the world is going through changes, of course. You know, place No place really ever stays the same. But something about Albania just uh, really, you can just feel this energy, um, 
yeah, things are completely changing. I th- you know, the first time I went, you know, the country's not that small, so or not that large, I'm sorry. So it's pretty easy to get around. Uh, but I think some of the, the biggest changes you're seeing are along the coast. You know, the first time I went there, even then, I was you know pretty late to the game in terms of in terms of how how the, the how much change is happening. But when, on that first trip, compared to like the last trip, you can see a lot of development happening along the coast, and you got to kind of wonder if they're going to keep it keep it under control, if it's going to get out from under them. And sadly, there's a there's a good argument to be made that it's getting out from under them. Fortunately, at the same time, you can also highlight several attempts uh some really cool cool things happening to try to try to maintain what's special about about the country they're coming off a low base though mate they were one of the poorest countries in the region for a while so you can kind of understand why when the tourism money turns up that they're going to grab it with both hands really yeah you can't really blame them of course not you know it'd be I don't know what it'd be like. It'd be like if I'd lived all my life on a dollar a day, then all of a sudden somebody's offering me a million bucks. Well, of course I'm going to take the million bucks. You know, if someone were to hand me a million bucks, I guess one of the reasons why I might have second thoughts about it if I were Albanian is because they have something there that that no other European country has that that at least I'm aware of. And that is because they were so poor and because they had this incredibly harsh dictatorship for so long, nobody in or out for many, many years, in a way, they're a little bit like a time capsule. They're a little bit like what the Adriatic coast used to be like before before everything happened, let's say. So you have these pockets along the coast that that are just like Italy, let's say, or just like Greece, but without the development where it's this naturally beautiful place. And so, I mean, what's that worth? So those are the sorts of things that they're wrestling with. It's what makes it so exciting for a traveler right now. At the start of the podcast, we mentioned that it appears to be undiscovered, and both Phil and I felt pretty guilty that we're sharing it with the rest of the world. That it's still undiscovered? I would say that that the word is definitely out about Albania. Um, it's funny, I have, I've had several people write me kind of out of the blue just saying, hey, we're thinking of going to Albania. What can you tell us? Whereas before, uh, you know, I don't think... <laughs> no, I, I, you know, it's, a, it's hard to, to gauge something like that, but, but you can tell that there's, that they're definitely, um, welcoming more tourists. You see more things, more travelers, you see, uh, more services for them. It's still very, very much undiscovered or so. And as far as like feeling guilty about that, um, I can understand that of course, at the same time, from the Albanian perspective, they're super excited to have, people come visit them and in a way they can't one of the most surprising things that i've seen over the years there's is how they can't quite really believe that people want to come see them (laughs) so there's still sort of this novelty aspect where you show up and they're 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 sort of like wait you're you're traveling around albania but i mean you know greece is right there right and croatia is right there and italy's right there you're coming to you're coming to my country, so they have sort of this little bit of surprise in some way. But they are incredibly, incredibly um, hospitable and thankful, and just unbelievably um, welcoming. Let's say it's very hard to buy your own meal there. Sometimes I can't, I, without a doubt, you you sit down in a little seaside restaurant, and somebody's going to buy you a drink. It's just, uh, it's incredibly friendly. So, you know, in terms of 
you know, whether you should feel guilty about getting the word out there or not. Um, I think Albanians themselves would argue quite, quite, uh, quite stringently with you on that. You know, you see obviously Turkish influences, the Turks were there for 500 years. So that that's embedded itself in everything from the cuisine to the architecture. Then you have that communist era and unlike a lot of places uh in in sort of ex-communist europe you know the albanians have have been a little bit slower let's say to rid themselves of some of of some of that um you know some of those uh landmarks and statues and so you could still you still get a, a kind of a good feel for uh what the place looked like then of course it's you know everything's been painted and um you know Things are a lot of statues have, of course, come down, but you still get a good a good feeling that you know what what it was like uh, under those days. I, of course, it's very, very, very different, very different. So I'm not trying to suggest that it's still like that by any means, um, but it is it is it is very eye opening. Let's say that, that nostalgia for those sort of you know Soviet symbols. It's it's like they're really cool now, but. Jesus, we hated them at the time, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, and so that's yeah, and that's something also that's really interesting is that is that there are no real Soviet symbols. Like the Albanians were their own thing, which makes them really interesting, in my opinion. They broke ties with the Soviets. They broke ties with the Chinese. You know, they of course courted both for a long time, but then they also broke ties with them. They hated the Yugoslavia. Uh, regime. So Albania was, it's, it's, you know, in one of my stories, I called it the North Korea of Europe. And and I don't think that's an exaggeration. Nobody was allowed in, nobody was allowed out. It was very tightly controlled. You could be arrested for wearing shorts in a city because that was too bourgeois. You had just, you know, just that weird, super oppressive um, uh, government for a long, long time. And so when you go around, you see sort of this Albanian, this Hoja, as that, you know, the dictator um, who, who ruled over the, the place for many, many years. I was named Enver Hoja. And, and so there was this Hoja brand of communism, which was very Stalin-esque and very dark and, and not a happy place at all. So you have to, it, it, there is a little bit of a dark tourism element happening, um, you know, that you can see. But what's, what's, super fun and interesting for me and something that's that you know has led me to write about the place over and over again is that you see these clashes between you know those dark days and and this incredibly bright future and and not clashes but but those you know where those two are rubbing up again up against each other and all the interesting things that that kind of burble up when that when that happens um i mean it's endlessly fascinating cheers tim and should we flip a coin to see who announces the number one destination i think it's only fair <laughs> and i have the coin would you like yeah go, heads I'll, or tails well, i'll go tails all right let's see if i can do this how do you can you actually coin? flip it oh, give it to me heads heads it is off oh. you go number one belize is yeah. our most listened to Destination episode, often referred to as the jewel in the heart of the Caribbean basin, known for the Great Blue Hole made famous by Jacques Cousteau, who declared it Phil one of the top five scuba diving sites in the world. And in that episode, we heard about Belize's Deep South from Jessica. Well, originally, when I first kind of did my research about going to Belize, I hadn't, I'd never been there before. It was my first time. Um, so I turned straight away to guidebooks and, um, online blogs to see, to see what to expect and to help me plan my two week trip there. And almost 
everything, everything talked about the North, um, the snorkeling, the blue hole obviously is, is really, really famous in Belize. Um, and I didn't really hear anything about the South at all. So that interested me. And then I kind of dug deeper to see if there was anything worth seeing in the South. And it was all very limited, the information basically. Um, so it wasn't until I got to Belize that I kind of was able to explore the South and it's very, very different to the North. You don't have any beaches. You, it's all mainly, the activities are mainland, um, inland, sorry. So you, you won't see much of the sea, but it's in the South where you get to do more of cultural, um, side of Belize that you don't, um, see as much when, when you're in the Keys, for example. And a lady commented to you, a local, that you don't see many tourists in that area. <laughs> no. So the infrastructure in the south is, um, well, there's just not a lot of infrastructure there. So when there's not much infrastructure, obviously there aren't as many tourists uh, going there because the transport is quite difficult to get down there. Um, there's lots of bumpy roads, sometimes no roads at all and not that many um, affordable hostels. So for at the moment, the South is mainly visited by the more intrepid traveller, the one that wants to get off the beaten path. So, yeah, as soon, that was the first thing. I was the only visitor at that time on that bus, <laughs> and I did get a few stares, and, but everyone was just intrigued, just wanted to know what I was doing there. Isn't that nice? We've heard of, heard of that in a couple of podcasts recently, Bangladesh in particular, just this lovely curiosity about why people are visiting. Yeah, definitely. And that's, you can definitely feel that in Belize that everyone's very, you know, at first, if you're new to traveling, you know, the stairs can be a bit off putting, but actually once you start talking to the locals, you realize that actually they're just, they're just intrigued. They want to know your story. They want to know what you're doing in, in their part of the world. So you were on this bus heading to a homestay. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I ended up getting a local bus uh, for, to Punta Gorda, which is the, the southernmost town in Belize. And then I got another, and it's all chicken buses in, in Belize. Um, so it can be a very bumpy ride, especially in the south when there's no tarmac roads. Um, so I ended up doing a couple of hours on that bus and then the bus actually stopped halfway through and made us all get off. I'm not actually sure why. I never found out why, but that was the end of the road for that bus that day. And I ended up having to hitchhike a 4x4 pickup truck that very luckily came past um, just like half an hour after me waiting. And that car very very kindly they took me to the village where I was gonna be spending the next few nights on a homestay. Were you worried you know there you are in an area where travellers don't normally visit and you're not kicked off a bus but you're forced to (laughs) yeah my mum and my nan said the exact same thing like what are you doing (laughs) um but actually um I've I'd already spent, I've, I've spent almost two years in Latin America. So I'm, 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 although Belize, every country in Latin America is different, 
I did already feel quite comfortable. I'd been traveling uh, for a long time. And also anyone who's been to Belize probably agree with me on this point that you do feel very comfortable very quickly. Obviously they speak English there as well and everyone wants to help you. So in that particular instance, I didn't feel uncomfortable at all. It was mainly all families around me just doing their daily daily routine from town back to home. So no, in that case, I felt pretty safe. Well, speaking of families, you arrived at where your, your home stay and you were greeted by a little little boy that asks if you're Jessica. So where does the story go from there? Yeah, so I'm kind of standing around very awkwardly. I've just been dropped off in this town. Um, there's not a lot around, just a few a few wooden wooden huts um, and not many people around. It was quite hot, so everyone was inside or by the river. Um, and suddenly this little boy, he's, he's kind of soaking wet. He's just run up from, from the river and, and he says, oh, is, is your name Jessica? And I said, yes. <laughs> um, and he, he suddenly very excitedly just ran off and expected me, I guess, to follow him. So I did. I tried to keep up with him. And we went through the town and he took me to what at the time I assumed was going to be my homestay. And we went into his house and in there, there was a lot of people in the house waiting for me. So, cause I had arrived a little bit late because of the whole thing with the bus. Um, so yeah, they were all there expecting me. And um, yeah, that's where it starts. So was this the house that you were staying in with all these people or were these just the neighbours that had come to, to welcome this? this yeah, so <laughs> the, um, the homestays in, in this part of Belize, how they work is instead of staying with one family, it kind of, it's shared out between, I mean, it's an extended family, the village, everyone knows each other anyway, whether they're cousins or equally just, just neighbors, it's all shared out. So that particular house is where I would eat lunch that day. Um, but I actually stayed in several houses and all of them kind of pitched in because obviously resources there are quite um difficult to come by you know this is quite a a poor community so for them to host a guest they need to share share the burden as it were um so yeah uh that was where i would stay at first but i did move around to lots of different houses and what did you learn about the culture some of the traditions Lots. Um, mainly the, the part that I enjoyed the most was the cooking. Um, I'm really into food and cooking. So, and so are they, you know, the, the Mayans take a huge pride in their produce, in their cooking. Um, some of the traditions that they, they do, they practice in the kitchen, they actually haven't changed much um, since you know, since the ancient Maya were living here, you know, hundreds, but probably thousands of years ago here. So that was very interesting for me. We learned how to make tortillas by hand, which is actually a lot harder than I thought it was. Um, cause you have to, so they grow the corn themselves and you have to de-husk it by hand, which they, they were there for hours de-husking and it's quite painful on that, on your hands. So we did that for a few hours and then you hand grind that into a corn flour and then you can start actually making making those and they cook everything on an open fire that's actually inside the kitchen so 
it can get very, very smoky in there and that's where they sleep as well. Obviously, I'm guessing you would recommend <laughs> that, that someone uh, travelling to Belize head south. Yeah, I mean, I would absolutely recommend it. Obviously, you know, it's not it's not for every type of traveller. If you're if you're coming to Belize uh, for a week of relaxation and a bit of luxury and the, and, and the blue seas, you know, all of that that's kind of synonymous with Belize, then. Yeah, of course, this this might not be for you. But if you're interested in um, having a cultural experience, a uh, cultural experience that is really seems quite natural, you know, it doesn't doesn't feel put on because there aren't many tourists there yet. So, uh, for example, I was the only one in the village at the time, so I had you know the undivided attention of of the people there, and they genuinely wanted to share their culture. So if you're looking for an experience like that, um, and obviously, as I said before, they speak English. So this is a rare opportunity in Latin America to, to connect with people like that are different, have a completely different way of life to what you might be used to at home. So yeah, I would definitely, definitely recommend getting off the beaten track, making the, the bumpy journey. It's, it's definitely worth it. Thank you, Jessica. A beautiful sounding destination, which is now on our list. Yep. Or is it? Let's check in with our nomads to see what your plans are for 2020. My name is Anna and I am 46 years old. I've decided to do a midlife crisis trip going and volunteering in Ghana to empower women in e-commerce, then diving in the Red Sea, traveling through the land of Egypt and Jordan, doing a layover in Qatar to go to Sri Lanka, and after touring that country, doing an Ayurveda retreat for seven days and trying to boost my confidence and my love for myself. My name is Lisa Dornfest. I'm a circumnavigating sailor and world nomad. All ring in the new decade sailing from Panama to Mexico's famed Sea of Cortez as I start my second lap around the globe. I'll venture to new ports and return to some old favorites with an eye to exploring world cultures deeply. Hi, world nomads team. Um, this is Lungi. 2020 plans. Uh, my ultimate goal is actually 2024 that I'm working towards where I want to sail around the world alone. Hey world nomads, my name is Camila and in 2020 I'm going to a round the world trip of sorts um, to over 20 countries in Latin America, Europe, um, Africa and Southeast Asia. I've always been a traveler and I was a third culture kid so I was raised um, internationally but this will be the first time that I'm taking a round the world trip of sorts and uh, doing it solo for the most part. Um, so I'm pretty excited and nervous but it's going to be a big adventure and the reason why I want to do it is one because it's always been a dream of mine to do a round the world trip um, and also because I'm in a sort of transitional phase of my life and I am taking the opportunity to uh, use travel as a way to help me figure out what's next. An exciting 2020 ahead for some of our nomads and we're looking forward to delivering you more incredible destinations including Bulgaria's on the list, Kenya and Tunisia. Yep. And amazing nomads like Lungi, who describes herself as a humble Zulu girl. She was afraid of the open sea, but feel now she's an accomplished sailor with an incredible story. We'll also have special episodes, as we said in our podcast last week. We're going to give you more audio and we're going to take it on the road. Fair enough. Don't tell the people.
boss. Yeah. The special epi- episodes will include Sarah's candid chat about what it's like to travel with an anxiety disorder, plus lots more, as we said. All right, final reminder for the year to get in touch with us by emailing podcast at worldnomads.com. In our first episode for 2020, we're going to Georgia, Ooh. not the state, the country. Bye. 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 